0: Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson. Our listeners will recall that our previous episode covered these two men and how they defined an entire era in American history. They championed a progressive movement in response to profound changes in the social, political, and economic life of the country. With Roosevelt's death in 1919 and the end of Wilson's presidency in 1921, America turned the page to a new era. It was now the 1920s, and the American people were tired of progressivism and its penchant for government activism. To emphasize the point, voters turned to two men who couldn't have been any more different from Roosevelt and Wilson in terms of both policy and temperament. These two figures, Warren G. Harding and Calvin Coolidge, would lead the nation into a new era of government restraint. Just as our previous episodes focused on two progressive icons— This series will focus on Harding and Coolidge, the two pillars of 1920s conservatism. If you look at the history of American presidential elections all the way back to 1824, which was around the time more people were able to participate and vote in presidential elections, and you look at which presidential candidate had the widest margins in terms of percentage over their opponent since that year, you'll find one name at the top. Warren G. Harding. In the 1920 presidential election, Warren Harding received 60.3% of the popular vote, while his opponent, James Cox, got 34.1% of the vote. That gave Harding a margin of victory of over 26%. It's a margin wider than anything Franklin D. Roosevelt, Dwight Eisenhower, Ronald Reagan, Andrew Jackson, and Abraham Lincoln ever enjoyed. Harding may have benefited from the fact that there was a socialist running for president named Eugene Debs who got about 3.5% of the vote and probably took more votes away from Cox than Harding. But that's not the point. The point is that Harding's victory over Cox ranks among the greatest in American history. When Warren G. Harding died, he was widely mourned. When his body was transported in his coffin by train. An estimated 9 million Americans lined the tracks to pay tribute. The San Francisco Chronicle eulogized him, saying, quote, America has lost a great president. She has lost a great man. One commentator said that he was the quote, greatest commoner since Lincoln. And yet, since his death, historians have consistently ranked Warren G. Harding among America's worst presidents some polls even rank him the worst president of all time. The American people have largely forgotten him. Whenever he's mentioned in popular culture or even among history enthusiasts, it's usually accompanied by outright mockery. There's even a mock trailer about a Warren G. Harding movie where he's portrayed by a mannequin and the actress Anna Kendrick makes love to him. Not kidding, go look it up. So how did this happen? How did a man so popular even beloved, become, at best, a national punchline, and at worst, one of the most vilified Americans in history. How it happened, and whether or not Harding deserves this infamy, is the subject of this episode of This American President. Warren Gamaliel Harding was born on November 2nd, 1865 in Blooming Grove, Ohio, mere months after the end of the American Civil War. His father, George Tryon Harding, had served in the Union Army as a piper and a drummer, and had even met President Lincoln while visiting the White House. After the war, George became a teacher and eventually a physician. He married a woman named Phoebe, who was a midwife, and together they had... Warren G. Harding. Young Warren was the oldest of eight children. According to one account, Phoebe predicted that her son Warren would one day become President of the United States. The Hardings were a close knit and loving family. They were also abolitionists and staunch Republicans. And together they had young Warren G. Harding. There was a rumor in their community that the Hardings had African American blood. And given the racist attitudes at the time, this was said in an attempt to sully their name. Within the Harding family, there's a story that a thief had failed to rob them and started that rumor in revenge. This charge, that Harding had African-American blood, would later come up during his political career. Young Warren went to school, and he did quite well, contrary to misperceptions that he was unintelligent. Historians Eugene Tranny and David Wilson, neither of them gushing Harding fans, wrote that he was, quote, not an intellectual, although from all accounts he was not unintelligent either. Harding went to college in Ohio Central College, where he started a school newspaper. After graduating in 1882, he moved to Marion, a small city in Ohio. In a few decades, he would end up becoming the most prominent citizen in Marion, 1884 was a turning point in Harding's life. He was barely over 18, but he and some friends made a gutsy move. They pulled together their limited resources and bought a dying newspaper called the Marian Star. Harding became editor, and he would use the paper as a platform to prominence. That same year, in 1884, he attended the Republican National Convention, and that's where he got his first real exposure to national politics. At the time, Republican Chester Arthur was the incumbent president of the United States, but Harding supported former Senator and Secretary of State James G. Blaine for the nomination. Also attending the convention was a rising star from the New York State Assembly. His name was Theodore Roosevelt. He was a reformer and opposed Blaine's candidacy. Harding was pleased to see Blaine go on to win the nomination. Roosevelt, obviously, was less pleased but he decided to support Blaine so as to not fully alienate the party. Few at the convention could have known that, with Roosevelt and Harding both attending, the GOP's progressive and conservative futures were present at that moment. Blaine would go on to lose the election to Democrat Grover Cleveland. But the event only solidified Harding's support for Republican policies. Harding also honed his political views as a newspaper editor, He wrote editorial articles on many local and national issues. As an aside, I've ghostwritten a number of editorials during my career, so I've learned firsthand about the art of writing them. And it's a very specific type of writing, very different from the kind people usually learn in school or in college, where your audience is usually an academic one. In op-ed writing, you have to craft a message very succinctly, and in a style that gets and sustains the attention of a large audience, namely the broader public. I have to think that doing this kind of writing prepared Harding well for a career in politics, where he had to hone his message in a way that connected with the voters. As editor, Harding became the major driving force that turned the Marion Star into a successful paper, and that success increased his visibility and reputation. And Harding was also a pretty likable guy. He was someone who did well in the social scene. He was affable, a good speaker, and many considered him quite handsome. So naturally, Harding was quite popular with the ladies. And soon, a woman, an older woman, came into view who would profoundly change his life and American history. Her name was Florence Mabel Kling. She was five years Harding's Sr., and was the daughter of one of Marion's wealthiest men, a man named Amos Kling. Amos was a self-made man and a hard-driving businessman who raised his daughter Florence to be a strong-willed, independent woman. Florence and her father would butt heads, and when she was 19, she got pregnant and eloped with a man named Henry de Wolfe. She gave birth to a son named Marshall, but things fell apart when Henry became an alcoholic and abandoned her. Florence's father, Amos, basically disowned her because of the entire affair, and she and her son were completely shunned by family and friends. Eventually, Amos came around and decided to help her raise Marshall, but she would still have to pay her own way. So with the help of a few friends, Florence got back up on her feet and she became a piano teacher, and one of her students was a girl named Charity Harding, who was Warren Harding's sister. Florence would go to the Harding household to teach charity, and it was at this point that she met Warren. And soon they had fallen in love. At the time, she was still in a common law marriage with Henry Kling, but she decided to dissolve it and marry Harding instead. Things looked promising for the couple, but her father Amos fiercely opposed the marriage. It seemed that Harding had criticized Amos in one of his editorials, which offended the man. Also, Amos felt that Florence could do better than to marry Harding. So it was at this point that Amos declared an all-out war on Harding to try to stop him from marrying his daughter. He spread those old rumors about Harding's ancestry, using the N-word to describe him, and he tried to get the Marian community to shun him, but none of it worked. Warren and Florence married in July of 1891, when he was 25 and she was 30. Those who knew the couple saw how they complemented each other. As I said earlier, she was a strong-willed and independent person. She could be demanding at times, while Harding was more laid back. Her nickname for him was Sonny, while he referred to her as either the boss or the duchess. Florence went on to work for Warren at the Marion Star, where she served as business manager. She apparently did a great job helping to run the newspaper, making it more efficient and helping increase its circulation. Some people then and now attribute Harding's success as a newspaperman or in politics to her. In some ways, she contributed mightily to his success, but some historians say that this is a bit exaggerated, and it wasn't the kind of situation where Warren was just a vehicle for her ambitions. Still, there was enough stress in Harding's life that he actually went up to the Battle Creek Sanitarium in Michigan to seek treatment. Some sources say it was for depression. Others say it might have been because of heart issues. And he apparently went at least five times during a three-year period. But meanwhile, Harding's paper continued to thrive. And it wasn't long before people began to consider him for elected office. As I said earlier, Harding was a Republican. According to his biographer, Francis Russell, for Harding, the GOP stood for union and prosperity. Harding believed that the party's support for high tariffs was the best way to prop up American business. The Marion Star became an island of Republican conservatism, considering that the rest of Marion was pretty Democrat. But that didn't deter Harding. In 1895, he ran for county auditor. It was an uphill struggle and he ended up losing that first race, but he exceeded expectations and his future seemed bright. In 1899, when Harding was nearing his mid-30s, he ran for the Ohio State Senate. and This time, he won. With his appealing personality, Harding was a natural in politics. He became one of the most popular members in the state house. His entrance into elective office coincided with the rise of the progressive movement And the split in the Republican Party between the Reformers and the Conservatives, which we saw in the 1884 election, had only widened. But Harding was one of those guys that found a way to make friendships with people on both sides. One newspaper reporter wrote of Harding, quote, He was soon regarded as a coming man in Ohio politics. He was an excellent mixer. He had an inestimable gift of never forgetting a man's face or his name and there was always a genuine warmth in his handshake, a real geniality in his smile. Harding was even referred to as, quote, the most popular man in the legislature. Harding gained a reputation as that of a, quote, harmonizer, not the man who would lead the party, but one who could bridge the divides within the party. He accepted some progressive arguments, and supported civil service reform in response to the corruption of party bosses. When fellow Republican Theodore Roosevelt ascended to the presidency and called for a progressive square deal which included new regulatory legislation and busting monopolies, Harding supported many of his policies but he rejected other progressive ideas that sought to change the structure of American democracy. These included proposals like the initiative, which would give the citizens the power to propose legislation that voters would then decide upon, and the referendum, which subjected legislation already passed by the legislature to the approval of the people. Harding felt that these proposals defeated the point of having elected officials. He referred to his own political philosophy as one of, quote, rational progressivism.
1: A new year full of surprises. But one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM
0: In a previous episode, I talked about Teddy Roosevelt and what made him tick. And I argued that it was the concept of greatness, and in this context, national greatness, that really motivated him. Roosevelt didn't support progressive policies for the same reasons many others supported them, like social justice and equality. He didn't support them as ends in themselves. For Roosevelt, these policies helped maintain the social fabric of the country and created a strong government, both of which he felt were necessary for America to emerge as a great nation. So what made Harding tick, at least politically? Well, I think I'd have to agree with biographer Francis Russell's assessment that the most important thing for Harding was party loyalty. Yes, Harding's greatest political passion was loyalty to one's party. Now, it might seem a bit silly or uninspiring that someone would be supremely dedicated to party loyalty. It's certainly more exciting and transcendent for someone to be obsessed with national greatness. And since we currently live in an age where people have less faith in both political parties, Harding's love of partisan loyalty seems to make no sense. But there was some reasoning behind it. Harding would later say, that he believed, quote, in political parties and government through political parties. Perhaps it was Amherst College professor Anson Morse who best explained what this meant. A foremost proponent of political parties, Morse wrote that parties were the means by which, quote, the crude first thoughts and blind first feelings of the people are transformed into the rational thinking and feeling which is public opinion. Morse's thinking would leave a strong imprint on one of his students, Calvin Coolidge, who would later cross paths with Harding. According to Morse's line of thinking, parties were what gave republics political cohesion. So for Harding, parties weren't an end in themselves. They were the means for the American system to function well in response to the desires of the American people. They were the grease that kept the machinery of government going. This is quite interesting since Harding is often described as a conservative, and conservatives are often identified as those wanting to conserve and apply the principles of the founding, and several of the founders themselves claimed they disliked political parties. George Washington famously warned us about them, but they, particularly Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson, also started the first political parties in American history. But either way, Harding's conservatism was based on the idea of preserving the great tradition of political parties in America. So Harding could justify his goal as a politician to keep the Republican Party united between its progressive and conservative wings. To Harding, it mattered less to him whether he identified with either wing, but that he was keeping those wings together so that the party, and therefore the country, could thrive. So, throughout Harding's career, we constantly see him emphasizing party unity. In one editorial, Harding said, quote, Popular government was quote, made operative through the party, which could in turn only exist with quote, cohesion, discipline, and leadership. Harding's devotion to political harmony was reflected in the fact that he often stayed home and refrained from voting on controversial issues. Again, for him, politics was less about taking a stand on hard issues and more about being a loyal Republican. If the party moved to the progressive left, Harding was willing to go along to some extent. And if it moved back to the right, Harding would also go along with it. It's fair to say that he was more at home on the right, but party unity still mattered more to him than ideological nuance. None of this led to a particularly heroic voting record, But it was smart politics. It made him inoffensive and palatable to both conservatives and progressives. Combined with his winning personality, it made him an attractive and convenient political figure. And often in politics, parties and voters have been willing to take the man with fewer enemies than someone who has more enemies but might look more impressive on paper. It didn't take long for Harding to become a floor leader in the Senate. He also had good relations with Ohio political bigwigs like Marcus Hanna, the man who engineered William McKinley's rise to the presidency. Harding's star rose even further when he was elected lieutenant governor of Ohio, the second highest ranking officer in the state. As his term ended, he declined to run for re-election, or as governor, and some say that was because Florence had some health issues at that point. It was around this time that Harding strayed from Florence and embarked on an affair with a woman named Carrie Phillips, who was the wife of a close friend. The Phillipses had just lost a child, and Mr. Phillips was so distraught that he went to the Battle Creek Sanitarium. This left Carrie alone at home, and soon she and Harding were in a passionate affair that would last 15 years. On another note, by this time, Harding seemed to have somehow won over his father-in-law, Amos. According to one account, Amos said Harding was still an N-word, but he was a, quote, smart N-word. There aren't a lot of heroes at this point in the story. But Harding still harbored political ambitions. In 1910, when he was 44 years old, he ran for governor of Ohio. He won the Republican nomination and faced incumbent Democrat Judson Harmon. That year, the GOP was dividing further between the Reformers and the Conservatives, and this time Harding wasn't able to heal the rift, so he lost by a pretty sizable margin. It seemed that Harding's political career had run its course. He considered leaving politics for good. After all, he had a successful newspaper business to return to. But he was still one of the most well-known Republicans in Ohio. And at the time, there was an Ohio Republican in the White House, William Howard Taft. Taft had been Theodore Roosevelt's chosen successor, but relations between the two men had soured. Roosevelt felt that Taft had departed from his progressive policies, and he was mounting a challenge to take away the Republican nomination from Taft in 1912. Harding was shocked when Roosevelt challenged Taft for the nomination. He felt that this was deepening the divide within the party between the progressives and the conservatives. For Harding, Taft was the incumbent and deserved the party's unified support. He believed that Roosevelt could only have been doing this out of, quote, egotism and greed for power. Taft was grateful to Harding for his support, and he even asked Harding to give his nominating speech at the convention. In doing so, Taft helped revive Harding's career. At the convention, Harding gave about as lofty and inspiring a speech as one could give about President Taft, saying he was the, quote, fine embodiment of honesty, a, quote, fearless executor of the law, Quote, "That inspiring personification of courage, that matchless exemplar of justice, that glorious apostle of peace and amity, and quote, "the finest example of lofty patience since the immortal Lincoln. Despite the divisions of the moment, Harding sought to unify the left and the right within the Republican Party, and reached out specifically to progressives. And this is where, despite his well-known oratory skills, Harding got a reputation for going over the top on alliteration, saying, quote, Progression is not proclamation nor palaver. It is not pretense nor play on prejudice. It is not of personal pronouns nor perennial pronouncement. It is not the perturbation of a people passion wrought nor a promise proposed. Progression is everlastingly lifting the standards that marked the end of the world's march yesterday and planting them on new and advanced heights today. Tested by such a standard, President Taft is the greatest progressive of the age. Even Harding would poke fun at his own words, saying he was, quote, bloviating. One of his friends even described his speeches as, quote, a rambling, high-sounding mixture of platitudes patriotism, and pure nonsense. As it turned out, when Roosevelt failed to beat Taft to the nomination, he and his supporters left and started their own party, the Progressive Party, and had their own convention and nominated Roosevelt as a third-party candidate. Roosevelt would end up splitting the vote with Taft, handing the election that fall to Democratic candidate Woodrow Wilson. Wilson would then implement a progressive agenda that rivaled and some would say exceeded Roosevelt's accomplishments in the White House. As we covered in a previous episode, under Wilson, America saw the reduction of the tariff, the implementation of the income tax, the establishment of the Federal Trade Commission to regulate businesses, and the creation of the Federal Reserve to regulate monetary policy. The progressive movement was at a high point. Meanwhile, Harding was back in the public eye. GOP leaders in Ohio approached Harding to run for the U.S. Senate. Around this time, Harding got close to a major political figure in Ohio named Harry Doherty. They had known each other for many years, but this time, Doherty saw a lot of potential in Harding, and he became a close political advisor. One major progressive reform was the 17th Amendment, which altered the way U.S. senators were chosen. Originally, they were chosen by state legislators, but from now on, they would be chosen by the vote of the people. Harding became one of the earliest to run for Senate in these popular vote-style elections. He won by a large margin. In 1915, Harding took office as a U.S. senator. He and Florence moved to Washington, D.C. Upon taking office, Harding automatically became a potential presidential candidate. The reason for this went beyond his personal popularity, though he seems to have won over his colleagues and the D.C. social scene the same way he did back in the Ohio State House. One of the biggest reasons people started thinking about him as a presidential candidate was simply because he was a senator from Ohio. Ohio was a key electoral state with a large population. This gave it considerable clout. Politicians from that state had a leg up in terms of visibility and electoral potential. In the late 19th century, Ohio gave America three consecutive presidents, Grant, Hayes, and Garfield, all Republicans, which is a pretty remarkable streak. It also gave America two early 20th century presidents, McKinley and Taft. The only other state with anywhere near Ohio's contributions to the presidency is Virginia, which gave America Washington, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, and Woodrow Wilson. So Harding was a senator that people were watching as a possible future president. The 1916 presidential election was coming up, but that was a bit too early for Harding. Perhaps Harding might be better positioned to run for president in 1920. In the meantime, Harding served as a senator much like he did in his previous offices, focusing on party unity. He did little in the way of proposing major legislation. According to one estimate, he missed 46% of roll calls. Historians have described Harding as a lazy senator. But other commentators, like John Dean, who published a book about Harding in 2004, argued that this is a misperception, that Harding was actually strategically missing those votes to avoid controversial issues, so as to not alienate progressives and conservatives. Dean also argues that Harding was a hard worker and spent much of his time in the Senate traveling, giving speeches, and building relationships, perhaps for a presidential run. Biographer Andrew Sinclair corroborates this and said, quote, Harding chose to show himself as a casual man. There was a hint of laziness in the stoop of his shoulders and the drawl of his voice. Those who wished to prove his sloth took this manner to be fact, but the truth was that Harding worked hard and played hard. Harding didn't totally abstain from the hot-button issues of his day. He criticized President Wilson for lowering the tariff, which, like a loyal Republican of his time, he believed was bad for American business. Harding also supported women's suffrage and prohibition. Not surprisingly, he voted 95% with the Republican Party line. As I said earlier, Harding was a popular senator. He made fast friends with many of his colleagues. One of those was Albert Fall, senator from New Mexico. Fall was a colorful guy who had fought with Theodore Roosevelt's Rough Riders in the Spanish-American War. Harding and Fall became poker buddies, along with a cadre of other colleagues and friends. More on Fall later. According to Francis Russell, Harding also made friends with someone from the Wilson administration, the assistant secretary of the Navy, a young man named Franklin D. Roosevelt, distant cousins with the former President Theodore Roosevelt, and a rising star in his own right in the Democratic Party. Harding and Franklin Roosevelt sometimes went golfing together, and the latter described Harding as, quote, most agreeable, a good sport, whether he won or lost. I really love these stories, by the way, of future presidents hanging out before becoming president, seeing how their lives intersected. At any rate, the GOP asked Harding to deliver the keynote speech at its 1916 National Convention, which was quite an honor for a freshman senator, but also some indication of how optimistic the party was about his future. One editor observed Harding during the convention and wrote down one of the most vivid descriptions we have of the man, saying, A tall, well-built man, just turning fifty, vigorous, self-contained almost to the point of self-repression, but not quite, handling himself, as to the gestures, the tilt of the shoulder and the set of the head, like an actor. His clarion voice filled the hall, and he was obviously putting on a parade, with the calm, assured, gracious manner of the delegate from some grand lodge exemplifying the work to the local chapter. When he smiled, he knew he was smiling. When he frowned, it was with a consciousness of anger. His robust frame was encased in well-tailored clothes, creased and pressed for the high moment. His eyeglasses were pinned elegantly to his coat. He used them in his gestures histrionically. His statesman's long-tailed coat of the cutaway variety and his dark trousers were of the latest New York mode. Fifth Avenue was tailoring Senator Harding in those days. Harding stood there on the rostrum, the well-schooled senatorial orator, with his actor's sharply chilled face, with his graying hair and massive dark eyebrows, with his matinee-idle manner, tiptoeing eagerly into the national limelight. Clearly, Harding could make an impression. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The candidate that that convention nominated, Charles Evans Hughes, ended up losing a close race to incumbent President Woodrow Wilson. Wilson would be a two-term president and his second term was dominated by American entry into World War I and his efforts to create a League of Nations to bring about a permanent peace. Around this time, Harding ended up being assigned to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, which gave him a perch from which to learn about momentous issues involving peace and war. The 1920 election was approaching. Even though Harding was a potential candidate for president, The real heavyweight looming over the race was former President Theodore Roosevelt. In the aftermath of his third-party run in 1912, Roosevelt had been making amends with the GOP and positioning himself for a return to the White House. The former president would obviously be a formidable figure for Harding or anyone else interested in running. According to Francis Russell, Roosevelt actually met with Harry Doherty and told him that he wanted Harding as his running mate in 1920. I'm not quite sure what to make of this. Russell doesn't provide any sourcing for this claim, nor have I been able to corroborate this anywhere else. It isn't all unlikely. It actually makes some sense considering Ohio's electoral importance and the fact that having Harding on the ticket could help the more progressive Roosevelt win over conservative support and enhance party unity. If it's true that Roosevelt was considering Harding as his running mate, It's quite interesting considering the way history turned out. The way things did turn out happened largely because, in January of 1919, Theodore Roosevelt died in his home at Sagamore Hill of a blood clot. He was 60 years old. Roosevelt's death changed the entire dynamics of the race, leaving it wide open. Talk of Harding's candidacy increased. It's one thing to be talked about as president. But it's another thing to actually consider being president, taking on the awesome responsibilities of leading a great nation, a rising world power. Just a week and a half after Roosevelt's death, Harding mused about the prospect, writing, quote, I expect it is very possible that I would make as good a president as a great many men who are talked up for that position, and I would almost be willing to bet that I would be a more common-sensible president than the man who now occupies the White House. At the same time, I have such an understanding of my own inefficiency that I should really be ashamed to presume myself fitted to reach out for a place of such responsibility. A few months later, Harding seemed much more alarmed at the prospect, saying, The only thing I really worry about is that I am sometimes very much afraid I am going to be nominated and elected. That's an awful thing to contemplate. But Harding remained confident in public. As a member of the Foreign Relations Committee, he attended a meeting with President Wilson in August of 1919 over the proposed League of Nations. During the meeting, Harding held his own with Wilson, America's only president with a PhD. Harding and many of his colleagues had strong reservations about Wilson's treaty with the European powers that would create the League of Nations. They worried about the proposals that obligated America to intervene militarily in foreign conflicts. Harding supported subjecting such intervention to the approval of Congress. When Wilson embarked on a trip across the country to build support for his league, Harding responded with well-received speeches rebutting Wilson's argument. During his tour in the fall of 1919, Wilson suffered a breakdown and had to be rushed back to Washington. He then suffered a major stroke, leaving him largely debilitated for the rest of his term. As we noted in previous episodes, Wilson's wife Edith kept his illness hidden from the public. From the end of 1919 to March 1921, when Wilson's successor would be inaugurated, the nation was without a functioning chief executive at a time when the momentous issues of peace and war were at stake. At any rate, Several Republicans lined up for the party's nomination. There was General Leonard Wood who had commanded Roosevelt's Rough Riders and had hoped to serve as commander of the American forces during World War I, but had been passed over by Wilson who selected General John J. Pershing instead. Many of the late President Roosevelt's supporters were now backing General Wood. Progressives had another choice in the form of California Senator Hiram Johnson, who had been Roosevelt's running mate in his third party run in 1912. And then there was Illinois Governor Frank Loudon, a favorite among conservatives. Harding announced his candidacy in December of 1919, with Harry Doherty serving as his campaign manager. He was attempting to do something no one had ever done before in American history to be directly elected from the U.S. Senate to the White House. Ten previous senators had become president, but none of them had ever been directly elected from the Senate. Now, there has been a long-time perception that Harding won solely because the party bosses got together in a smoke-filled room to decide the nomination. Part of this perception comes from Doherty, who is quoted saying the following during the campaign, I don't expect Senator Harding to be nominated on the first, second, or third ballot. But I think we can well afford to take chances that about 11 minutes after 2 o'clock on Friday morning at the convention, when 15 or 20 men, somewhat weary, are sitting around a table, some of them will say, who will we nominate? At that decisive time, the friends of Senator Harding can suggest him and can afford to abide by the result. But the narrative that Harding won only because of a bunch of party bosses in a smoke-filled room fails to take into account that both Harding and Doherty were pretty savvy operators in the game of politics. They had a good sense of timing, and when planning the campaign, they decided Harding would keep a low profile early in the race, while Wood, Johnson, and Loudon duked it out and picked each other off one by one. All the while, they would present Harding as a viable second choice for delegates if their first choice didn't pan out. But beyond the political strategy, the most important part of the campaign was messaging. Harding and Doherty hit upon the exact message that the American people wanted to hear. To understand why, it's important to take measure of the times. Those living in 1920 were living through a dizzying and unsettling amount of change. Their nation had reached new heights of prosperity during and after the Gilded Age. America was now an industrial giant. It was, by many measures, the richest and most productive country in the world. New railroads and factories were being built across the country. The nation was several decades into a long process of urbanization and industrialization. New innovations and appliances were entering the economy, like cars, phones, and radios. Airplanes had recently made their debut. The assembly lines and massive monopolies were features of the modern economy. Electricity was now powering factories and lighting up homes. Productivity was increasing. The social fabric of the country was also changing. Women had the right to vote. African Americans were migrating out of the rural southern states into the urban northeast. Generations of new immigrants had changed the ethnic makeup of the country. Hundreds of thousands of American troops who had served abroad during World War I had seen more of the world than previous generations. America was becoming more involved in geopolitics than ever before. All of these factors had changed the way Americans lived and worked. It was a time of unprecedented change. Presidents Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson responded to these changes with equally unprecedented government activism. And by then, the debilitated President Wilson was still trying to impose incredibly ambitious plans to ensure world peace through his League of Nations, a plan that called for America to permanently engage in world affairs. But by 1920, the American people were exhausted. Yes, they continued to buy up the latest innovations, like cars and radios. Yes, they continued to work in the factories. Yes, women exercised the vote. But in times of change... There is often this yearning for simpler, for calmer and quieter times. The influential economist John Maynard Keynes captured the mood, saying, Our power of feeling or caring beyond the immediate questions of our own direct experience and the most dreadful anticipations cannot move us. We have already been moved beyond endurance and need rest. Warren G. Harding was the only candidate for president in 1920 that really captured that yearning. In a speech in Boston, he laid out his vision. Behind the rather forced alliteration were words that soothed the ears of the voters. Healing, restoration, serenity, and finally, normalcy. Critics mocked the word normalcy, saying that it wasn't even a real word, although it did appear in dictionaries many decades before. Either way, the American people loved the idea of a return to normalcy, a return to simpler times. And whatever can be said about the wisdom of this course... It's hard not to imagine why a people would, after decades of exhausting change, of social experimentation, and of war, would long for some space to breathe. Warren Harding promised just that. He was essentially promising to turn back the clock in American politics, back further beyond the policies of Theodore Roosevelt, all the way back at least to William McKinley, if not earlier. It was a promise to balance the progress that had been made in government, in the economy, and in technology with the restoration of traditional values. And when we note that Americans wanted normalcy, that's not to say that they rejected all aspects of modernity. But it does suggest that Americans didn't want modernity to overwhelm the things and the values that had worked before. And some of it was honestly just pure exhaustion. Americans wanted a break. In the same speech, Harding contrasted his predecessor, President Wilson, and his utopian activist policies with his own more modest, minimalist proposals. Harding also called for a return to good old American patriotism. And this is where Warren Harding employed a term or a phrase that has outlasted his campaign. That term was America first. As potent as this message for normalcy and America first was, he still had to defeat his opponents, the other Republicans running for the nomination. And at first, it didn't look like this would happen. Harding didn't perform very well in the primaries. In fact, when he lost in Indiana, he considered ending his campaign. But Florence, still strong-willed as ever, insisted he stay in. By the way, Florence also dabbled in the spiritual. Apparently, she visited a supposed clairvoyant named Madame Marcia, who predicted that Harding would win the nomination and become president, but that he would also die in office. Supposedly, Florence revealed this to reporters, but didn't tell her husband because he didn't believe in clairvoyance. At any rate, as the convention approached, Harding and Doherty's plans started paying off. Senator Johnson launched an investigation into General Wood and Governor Loudon's campaign spending practices. This embittered the three camps against each other, making it harder for any of them to expand their base of support. Meanwhile, Harding, to some extent, remained the second choice for many candidates, just as Doherty and Harding had planned. The convention began in June in Chicago. General Wood led early, and Harding's tally didn't look very promising. But Wood, Loudon, and Johnson simply couldn't garner enough support to win the nomination. By the eighth ballot, the convention was deadlocked, and the delegates went on to recess. Various compromise candidates were considered, but Harding seemed to be the one guy that both the progressives and the conservatives could accept, the one guy who stood a chance at unifying all of them. And all of this makes some sense. After all, Harding's entire ideology was basically about party unity. And again, it helped that Harding was from Ohio, a critical state, especially since the Democrats were considering nominating the governor of Ohio, James Cox, as their presidential candidate. The turning point was when Governor Loudon released his delegates, freeing them to vote for whoever they wanted. Harding's support skyrocketed from just 13% of the delegates on the 8th ballot to almost 40% on the 9th ballot. Harding ultimately won on the 10th ballot with about two-thirds of the delegate tally. Warren G. Harding was now the Republican nominee for president.
1: Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer
0: solitaire,
1: huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes.
0: ChumbaCasino.com.
1: No purchase necessary, by law, conditions apply. See website for details.
0: Doctors endorse it, nutritionists recommend it, and customers love it. talitren Healthy Weight Loss. Marie in Pennsylvania lost 117 pounds with Calitran. Ron in Texas lost 35 pounds. Diane not only lost weight, but she also found relief from arthritis. Lynn lost over 35 inches and 45 pounds. Calitran contains collagen, the most abundant protein naturally occurring in the human body, which decreases as we age. Taking Calitran promotes better sleep, more energy, less joint pain, and best of all, weight loss. Calitran has an amazing 86% success rate with their 90-day supply. And this week, take advantage of their President's Day sale. Buy the 90-day supply and get an extra month free, plus free shipping. Ordering is so easy. Just text the word President to 30605 and I'll send you a link for this special offer. Again, text PRESIDENT to 30605. There was a little bit of confusion in determining Harding's running mate. There were talks for Senator Johnson to join Harding to balance the ticket with a progressive. Johnson reportedly turned down the offer. Harding was also interested in Wisconsin Senator Irvine Lenroot, who was also a progressive. Again, here we see Harding going for party unity. Everything seemed set. Illinois Senator Medal McCormick went up to the convention platform to nominate Lenroot. But the delegates were fed up with being dictated to by the bosses, and they began chanting the name of someone else, Calvin Coolidge. Coolidge was the popular governor of Massachusetts. He actually had had hopes to win the presidential nomination that year, but he didn't make much of a splash. But he had national name recognition because he had taken a strong stance against labor during the Boston police strike the year before. Coolidge was popular among conservatives and those who feared the radical labor movement. The delegates may not have thought much of Coolidge when it came to the presidency, but he was popular enough to be their top choice as vice president. The movement for Coolidge gained momentum at the convention, and he was quickly nominated as Harding's running mate. The nomination of two reliable conservatives confirmed that the Republican Party had officially rejected the politics of the Progressive Era, including the Republican brand of progressivism championed by Theodore Roosevelt. And it raises the question of whether the party would have gone in this direction had Roosevelt still been alive. But that's all speculation at this point. The Republicans were offering the country a chance to reverse or at least slow down the policies of Roosevelt and Wilson. At the end of June and the beginning of July, the Democrats held their own convention in San Francisco. Apparently, President Wilson, delusional about his own physical state, nursed hopes that he would be nominated to an unprecedented third term. But this was pure fantasy. After 44 ballots, the Democrats ended up nominating Governor Cox, Harding's fellow Ohioan, and also another newspaperman. And Harding's old golfing buddy, Franklin D. Roosevelt, was nominated as vice president. Not everyone was impressed with Harding's nomination, especially the media. The New York world called him, quote, weak and mediocre, while the New York Times said he was a, quote, very respectable Ohio politician of the second class. Democrat William McAdoo said Harding's speeches were like, quote, an army of pompous phrases moving over the landscape in search of an idea. Sometimes these meandering words actually capture a straggling thought and bear it triumphantly, a prisoner in their midst, until it died of servitude and overwork. Social critic H.L. Mencken was even more brutal, saying Harding's vocabulary, quote, Reminds me of a string of wet sponges, of tattering washing on the line, of stale bean soup, of college yells, of dogs barking idiotically through endless nights. It is so bad that a sort of grandeur creeps into it. It drags itself out of a dark abyss of pish and crawls insanely up the topmost pinnacle of posh. It is rumble and bumble. It is flap and doodle. It is balder and dash. But Harding's critics aside, the American people seemed to like him, making it not the last time that they warmed up to a figure who the elite class scoffed at as unintelligent. Harding and Doherty borrowed from a winning strategy McKinley used in his presidential runs, the Front Porch Campaign. Harding spent much of the race at home in Marion, where he gave speeches literally from his front porch. The American people came to see him, about 600,000 of them visited him, and wanted to hear him speak. And during those speeches, he continued to focus on party unity, hedging on the major issues to avoid dividing up the party. The major issue was the League of Nations, and whether America would participate in it. The Democratic ticket ran in support of the League, hoping to fulfill President Wilson's vision, while Harding, in his usual fashion, remained ambiguous on the issue. He also wasn't confined to just campaigning for Marion. He ended up traveling across the country and giving about 112 speeches. Cox and Roosevelt also went on the road and spoke to millions of Americans. The campaign was generally clean. Neither side attacked each other with too much mudslinging. But there was one ugly incident. One William Chancellor, a professor at the College of Worcester, spread around pamphlets claiming that Harding had black ancestry and was therefore unfit for office. Thankfully, this attack didn't get much traction. November 2nd was Election Day, and it was the first presidential election where women could vote in every state in the country. Supposedly, according to some sources, Harding's good looks won over at least some of the women voting. People often said that Harding just looked like a president, and some believe that this worked in his favor. Election Day also happened to be Harding's 55th birthday. On that day, Harding and Coolidge won in one of the most lopsided election results in American history. As I said at the start of the episode, it remains the widest margin by percentage going back to 1824, 26 percentage points. Harding won more than 60% of the popular vote, something only FDR, Lyndon Johnson, and Richard Nixon would accomplish. He also won 37 states, with just 11 going to Cox, for a 404-127 vote result in the Electoral College. For decades, the Democrats had had a hammerlock on all of the 11 southern states that had seceded from the Union during the Civil War. Harding's victory in Tennessee had been the first time since the end of Reconstruction, when a former Confederate state went Republican. And Harding had some coattails, too, as he increased the Republican majorities in the House and the Senate. He became the first senator to be directly elected to the presidency and he was also the first president to be born after the end of the Civil War, and the first, and thus far only, president to be elected on his birthday. His victory, in part, came because of his message, his promise to return to normalcy. But we can't attribute it solely to Harding and his message. It was also, in large part, a repudiation of Wilson and his utopian vision for the world. Whatever way you look at it, Warren Harding, the former newspaperman, the charming politician from Marion, was about to become the 29th President of the United States. Harding was entering the White House at the start of a new era. America was turning the page from years of war and government activism. A new decade was at hand. It was a fresh start for the nation, but it was also a time of unease. When we look back at the 1920s, we think of the things in the newsreels and the movies, the dancing flappers, the speakeasies packed with people. We think of the Jazz Age and the barrels of moonshine. The 1920s would be filled with a lot of that. But when Harding first took over, the nation's economy was in crisis. The transition from a wartime economy to a peacetime one was difficult. There weren't enough jobs for returning veterans. There was deflation and a drop in foreign trade unemployment was high, workers were going on strikes across the country, and as I mentioned earlier, President Wilson was incapacitated, so the country was without a functioning chief executive for about a year and a half. Harding had his work cut out for him, which led him to choose men of impressive stature for his cabinet. For the top slot, Secretary of State, he chose Charles Evans Hughes, the 1916 Republican nominee for president who had lost to Wilson. Despite this defeat, Hughes had an impressive resume. He had been governor of New York and a justice on the U.S. Supreme Court. He was widely respected. And honestly, he just looked like a great statesman. If you Google him, you'll see what I mean. For Treasury Secretary, Harding's choice was Andrew Mellon, a Pittsburgh-based banker, and according to one estimate, the second richest man in the country, just behind John D. Rockefeller. Mellon helped finance some of the biggest companies in the world, like Alcoa, Westinghouse, and Gulf Oil. For Commerce Secretary, Harding made another impressive choice Herbert Hoover. Now, in light of Hoover's subsequent tenure as president, some people might be surprised to hear him described as impressive. But it's a fact that in 1921 he was considered one of the most brilliant figures of his time. Hoover was a self made man having been born to a poor Quaker family in Iowa. He went to Stanford University and eventually made a fortune as a mining engineer traveling the world, going to Australia and China, where he picked up Mandarin. When World War I broke out, President Wilson appointed him first to head up a food relief program for Belgium, and then for Central and Eastern Europe. In these positions, Hoover saved countless millions of lives and became known across the world as the Great Engineer. There's been a perception that Harding was basically just the tool of business-obsessed conservatives. Well, Harding was certainly conservative, but he wasn't rigidly so, and his cabinet members, especially Hughes, Hoover, and his Secretary of Commerce, Henry Wallace, had progressive tendencies. In fact, Hughes had supported Wilson's League, and Hoover had been part of Wilson's administration and was a fan of government activism. Conservatives were happy that Harding had appointed Mellon, but not about his appointing Hoover. But Harding insisted that if the conservatives wanted Mellon, they had to take Hoover as well. That Harding was willing to defy Republican conservatives here indicates some measure of confidence he had in his leverage over them. Hughes, Hoover, and Mellon were standouts. They alone made the cabinet impressive. And they also reflect, again, Harding's focus on party unity. Historian Kenneth White believes that Harding's selection of a progressive like Herbert Hoover was a way to placate pro-League of Nations advocates within the Republican Party. Harding would also include his vice president, Calvin Coolidge, in those meetings. Coolidge was famous for being quite reticent, and he wouldn't be a major player in the administration. But being invited to participate at all was more than what most vice presidents had experienced up to that point. Unfortunately, Harding's cabinet also featured some tragically flawed choices. First, he appointed his close advisor, Doherty, as attorney general. He also put his close friend and former Senate colleague, Albert Fall, as Secretary of Interior. As we will see, both of these men would inflict grievous damage on Harding's legacy. On March 4, 1921, Warren G. Harding stood on the East Portico of the U.S. Capitol and took the oath of office as the 29th President of the United States. He swore the oath on the same Bible that George Washington used for his first inauguration back in 1789. In his inaugural address, Harding acknowledged that the world had changed in recent years, saying, We recognize the new order of the world with the closer contacts which progress has wrought. Harding insisted, quote, America is ready to encourage, eager to initiate, anxious to participate in any seemly program likely to lessen the probability of war. With that said, Harding's speech focused mainly on a restoration of traditional American policies. He said, The recorded progress of our republic, materially and spiritually, in itself proves the wisdom of the inherited policy of non involvement in old world affairs. He added, America, our America, the America builded on the foundation laid by the inspired fathers, can be a party to no permanent military alliance. He then promised to repeal wartime taxes, cut government spending, and uphold the tariff. Harding affirmed the conservative belief in minimal government, saying, quote, Our most dangerous tendency is to expect too much of government, and at the same time, do for it too little. With these reassuring words, the Harding administration had begun. Like all presidents, when Harding took the oath of office, he swore to, quote, preserve protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. In his first year as president, he literally did just that. Not long after taking office, he issued an executive order transferring the original copy of the U.S. Constitution, along with the Declaration of Independence, from the State Department, where they were not being properly protected from wear and tear, and into the possession of the Library of Congress. Harding then approved for the two hollowed documents to be placed in, quote, a safe, permanent repository, where they could be properly preserved and available for public viewing. Today the documents can be seen in Washington, D.C. in the National Archives. One could make the argument that Warren G. Harding did more than any other president to fulfill his pledge to preserve the Constitution. The newspaper editor from Marion, Ohio, was now the president of a rising America. The country was entering a new era, and Harding would be in a position to mold its destiny for decades to come. How his presidency played out is the subject of the next episode of This American President. To learn more about Warren G. Harding and Calvin Coolidge, check out The Shadow of Blooming Grove by Francis Russell the Presidency of Warren G. Harding by Eugene Tranny and David Wilson. Warren G. Harding by John W. Dean. Coolidge by Amity Schlaes. And The Presidency of Calvin Coolidge by Robert Farrell. This American President is produced by myself, Richard Lim, and Michael Neal. If you like what you've been hearing, you can help us by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to our show. I'm Richard Lim. We're back next time with more This American President.
1: The history of the Popes of Rome and Christianity reaches into nearly every aspect of history In the History of the Papacy podcast, we step over the rope. We dive in to discover more about the people, events, and background that define
0: the influence of the Popes of Rome and Church, not only on the West, but the world. To start listening now, go to parthenonpodcast.com or search for History of the Papacy on your favorite podcast platform.